Thy could be turned, please, to the good word of God. And we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. First Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, the damned that me to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ to be raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits, of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Then come of the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign 
Peter, he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put unto him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things unto him. But all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son of the, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. Now, would you like to take a wee trip? Far to take a wee trip? We'll be back in about 25 minutes. We're going to get into H.G. Wells' fantastic time machine. And H.G. Wells' time machine is one of those fantastic machines, science fiction of course, in which you get into the machine and you can either turn the dial into the future or you can turn it into the past. So we've got into H.G. Wells' time machine and we're going to turn the dial back nearly 2,000 years precisely the 16th of the Jewish month Nisan which is equivalent to March-April of our calendar the year is AD 32 and we're outside of the city of Jerusalem precisely and we notice that there are a certain company of women and they have got spices which they have prepared and they're making a way to a particular sepulchre and when they get there they discover that the Roman soldiers are still posted and they are keeping guard over this certain sepulchre they notice the big stone is still there in place and the Roman seal is there unbroken and inside lies the lifeless corpse of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was crucified a few days ago namely on Thursday not Good Friday as we believe by tradition now you're probably saying, Stanley, what Bible are you reading from? That is not what happens. Dear friends, have you ever engaged in a form of thinking known as what if? You sit down, you look at a certain situation, and you think to yourself, what if I had done something different? What if I, if I hadn't married the woman that I did marry? And if I had married somebody else? Or what if I had not taken the job that I took? What if I had another job? What if Hitler had actually won the war? And Britain came under the domination of Nazism. That is what I mean when I speak of what if thinking. 
My dear friends, I have painted a very simple picture of what could have happened on the 16th of Nisan, AD 32. And if that had happened, the whole course of history would have been so vastly different. I would not be here this evening. You would not be sitting where you're sitting. Would not be singing these wonderful hymns or praise. Everything would have been so different. If Jesus Christ had remained in the tomb on that Monday, on that Sunday. And have you noticed that this is the very thing that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we have taken the time this evening to read this very important portion of God's word. Because the Apostle Paul deals with this scenario. Because there were those at Corinth who denied the resurrection. Full stop. No such thing. When you're dead, you're dead. No coming back to life. No such thing as resurrection. And there were those who believed that in Corinth. And Paul had to correct them. And he had to say, if that is true, then Jesus Christ is not alive. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. If you say there's no resurrection. And then the Apostle Paul gives us a list of at least six repercussions that would have resulted if the Lord Jesus had remained in that tomb. And they're very, very serious indeed. Let me mention just a few by, by way of illustration. He says that if Christ is not alive, then the sin problem remains unsolved. Look at verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. You see, dear friends, the purpose of our Lord's death was to make an atonement for sin. He was fulfilling the ancient Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And his death on the cross was to provide an atonement for your sin and for my sin. A sacrifice that would reconcile us to God having dealt with the sin problem which you have and which I have. And that is why John the Baptist when he saw him coming on the banks of Jordan he said to the disciples Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That was the reason he was on the cross. Not for his own sin because he was sinless, he was spotless, he was stainless. He was there as your substitute and my substitute. Bearing shame 
and scoffing rude in our place condemned he stood bearing your sin and my sin and bearing God's punishment for your sin and my sin now then how do we know that that sacrifice that he offered on the cross that atonement which he made how do we know that it was acceptable in the sight of a holy and a just God how do we know that that sacrifice satisfied God's justice and God's righteousness and God's holiness because God cannot bypass sin he can't wake at sin it must be dealt with either in the sinner's substitute or the sinner himself of course there's only one answer and that is he must rise again from the dead but dear friends if he did not rise from the dead then Paul says ye are yet in your sins that sacrifice was not acceptable there was a blemish there was a stain to it because he's still there in the tomb secondly if Christ is not alive Paul says then we have no message for the world look at verse 14 he says and if Christ be not risen then is our preaching then what do we have to preach if Jesus Christ is still in the tomb it's no use preaching that Jesus Christ was a good man no use preaching he was a righteous man no use preaching he was a great teacher because there were good men and great teachers before and after Jesus Christ why single him out from the rest they came and they died here's another one another great teacher he also has died and well he's dead so what message can be preached to a world that desperately needs not a good teacher not a good example but someone who can deal with their sin problem in their lives and Paul says our preaching is in vain and how sad it would have been I wouldn't be here today I'll be redundant then the third thing is this if Jesus Christ is not alive Paul says then faith is but mockery look at 14 again and if Christ be not risen then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain and he mentions that twice he mentions it again in verse 17 and if Christ be not raised your faith is vain because let's face it faith in a dead saviour is no use and when we preach we preach a living Christ and we exhort people to put their trust and faith in him but what's the sense of putting your faith and trust in someone who's dead what can they do now dear friends I have just lifted out three 
of the repercussions that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians 15. The sin problem remains unsolved. We have no message for the world. And our faith is in vain. I wonder what those Corinthians thought of that. When they denied a resurrection from the dead. I somehow have got the thought that Paul could not wait until he came to verse 20. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Let's reverse the scenario that I started with. See those dear sisters, God bless them with their spices and when they approach the sepulchre they discover something wonderful the big stone was rolled away not to let the saviour out but to let them in the Roman seal has been broken and the soldiers that were guarding the tomb they were scattered because of the angel that appeared on that occasion. And thank God this evening, on this Easter Sunday, we are rejoicing in someone who did die on the cross on Calvary's hill and was buried in the tomb and on the third day God raised him triumphantly, victoriously, supernaturally from the dead and that is why we're here this evening and that is why I'm here this evening not to preach a dead saviour but to preach someone who is alive and alive forevermore now dear friends this evening you tell this to the world outside walk in the streets here in Moody'sburg wherever you live you say, have you heard the news? He's alive. They say, who's alive? And they say, Jesus Christ is alive. You see, Easter for many people is just another holiday. A time to get children, grandchildren, Easter eggs. And according to the Daily Mail on Saturday, the fourth thing that is considered at Easter time among general people, a survey, is this, Jesus. He takes third place. Other things, first place, second place. And of course, the atheists have a hide. You don't expect us to believe such a thing. Someone coming back from the dead. Oh no, what planet do you live in? And the humanists and the secularists, and we're living, dear friends, in a secular society. Atheism, humanism, secularism is on the move. And it's no use I'll say when I, he lives within my heart. But that's a lovely hymn. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Can you imagine saying that to Richard Dawkins? The militant atheist. Oh, Mr. Dawkins, he lives within my heart. Oh, you mean that uh, organic thing in your body, the heart that pumps the blood through the body, is that where he's living? He would say, What's the evidence? What's the proof? 
Is this a fairy tale? Is this myth? Is this imagination? What's the proof? What's the evidence? And you, dear Christian, better be in the position to tell Richard Dawkins and any others why you believe what you believe. Not just what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. Do you believe in the resurrection? Wonderful. Then why do you believe it? What's the evidence? What's the proof that you can give to the atheist, to the agnostic, to the infidel, to the humanist, to the communist? They want evidence. They want, and dear friends, rightly so. Now, I don't know if you listen to a very interesting program on uh, uh, ITV, the third channel, mostly in the afternoons, uh, the Judge Winter, Winter program. Ever, ever look at that? Judge Winter. He's actually a barrister, and he, he deals with real-life cases in the courtroom. Very interesting program. And if you listen to that program and look at that, there are two things that Judge Winter emphasizes. First of all, he says, you brought this case to this court and you want me to try it. He says, now, what evidence do you have? He's always emphasized, what evidence do you have? And then, of course, secondly, and this delights him with great joy, he says, now tell me, have you got anything in writing? Not just verbally, but have you got anything in writing to substantiate your case? You say, this man owes you some money, but now, is there any written agreement that he's going to pay you so much a month? Two things, evidence, and is it in writing? Uh, I'm sure Judge Render would be highly delighted this evening if he was here. Because when we think of the resurrection of our blessed Lord Jesus, we have evidence. And thank God we've got it in writing. You have it in the Gospels, you have it in the Acts of the Apostles, you have it in all the Epistles mostly, you have it in the book of Revelation. There are over 104 references to our Lord's resurrection in the, in the New Testament. That's an awful lot of evidence. 104 references. Now that's your homework, friends. That's your homework. You get home tonight and you're drinking your cocoa, whatever you drink before going to bed, and you're getting your Bible down, your New Testament down, and you're going to look at all those 104 references to the resurrection. That may take you a wee while, but you don't hurry. You may get to bed three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning, no sense. And then when you've got all the references, well then you bring the Graham and then he'll check them out for you. <laughs> Next Sunday. Okay, Graham? And you better have them all yourself, brother. <laughs> Evidence and is it in writing? Now, what evidence can we give to these atheists who deny the resurrection? Good evidence. First of all, he was seen. Not just by one person, not just by two persons, 
But Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15, on one occasion during the 40 days between our Lord's resurrection and his ascension, during those 40, on one occasion there were over 500 brethren on one occasion who actually saw him. Now I will grant you, it is possible maybe for one person to be deceived, or maybe a couple of people to be deceived, but surely you're not going to say that it's for on one occasion that all the 500 people were deceived. Of course not. He was seen by witnesses. They actually saw him in all his resurrection glory. And dear friends, that's a powerful part of evidence in any court. If you can say, I've seen that man, I've seen that woman. And, there's the and Paul says, concerning the 500, the greater part remain. Only a, only a couple have fallen asleep, they've died. As if to say, what I, you can check it out. They're still living. Go and check it out with these, these people. And they will substantiate that Jesus Christ, they did see him in person. He was seen. And then he was heard. They actually heard him talk to them. In fact, the Bible says, one dear woman recognized him by her name. How he pronounced her name. And who was that? That was Mary Magdalene. Do you remember? At the tomb. Oh, panic stricken. They have taken away my Lord. And they know not where they have put him. And then Jesus appeared. She thought he was the, gov- the, 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 the gardener. And then Jesus said, Mary. And as soon as she heard Mary, she turned around and she said, Rabboni, Master. In other words, she, she recognized his voice. And she recognized how he pronounced and said her name, Mary. He was heard when he rose from the dead. And for 40 days, Time and time again he appeared and he talked to them and they recognized that voice. He was seen, he was heard, but thirdly he was handled. Another part of evidence, he was handled. Because it says in Matthew 28 that when Jesus appeared to certain women, it says they held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now can you, can you hold a spirit? Can you hold a ghost? Can you hold fog together? Of course you're not. But when they held his feet, they realized he was literal. He was tangible. As you remember Luke 24, that tremendous chapter, the Lord appeared to them, and they were frightened. The Lord just suddenly appeared. They were frightened, and they thought that they had seen a spirit. And Jesus said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And here's how he put it. It is I myself. 
They could have said, it is I. Or they could have said, it is myself. Although, he puts it more emphatically. He says, it is I, myself. The same person that you knew before Calvary. But this body has been resurrected from the dead. It has been glorified. It has been transformed. It has been changed. And, but it is still myself. There's the evidence, friends. He was seen. He was heard. And he was handled. A literal person. Flesh and bones. Not flesh and blood, mind you. Flesh and bones. And there is a distinction. I wonder what Richard Dawkins would say to that. He's looking for evidence. There's tremendous evidence. Now, let me read to you a lovely quotation I came across recently by a brilliant lawyer by the name of Sir Edward Clark KC now here's his own words now listen very carefully here's a lawyer well versed in legal proceedings well versed in assessing evidence here's what he says his own words as a lawyer I have made a prolonged study of the evidences for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the High Court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. The message of Easter Day is the sovereign remedy for human disillusionment and misery and teaches us that it is always darkest before the dawn. There's the confession of a, a lawyer, a brilliant academic, Sir Edward Clark, and he has examined the evidence from a legalistic point of view as it were and that's the conclusion he says he's won more cases with less evidence than they had for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so dear friends make no apology we can go out we can stop the atheists we can stop the humanists and the communists and we can say he's alive and here's the proof here's the evidence he's a living saviour now isn't it sad dear friends isn't it sad now you may not agree what I'm going to say I can't be a wee bit controversial time, but sadly keep it right he's well versed in theology see sadly after the service had anyone showed me one scripture in the New Testament that shows us that his disciples believed that he would ever rise again from the dead can you produce any scripture? 
to show the disciples where I expected him to rise. Now, if you can't, dear friends, and I say this sincerely, would you see me after the service? I want to get the chapter. I want to get the verse. I want to get the book. Tell me, why were those dear ladies bringing the spices? Were they expecting the, the, the body not to be there? Of course not. They were expecting the body still to be there. And they were going to uh, deal with the corpse. To apply the spices uh, so that decom- decomposition won't, won't set in, you see. According to Jewish burial. Why would they bring the spices if they believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead? Uh, tell me. It took the Lord about 40 days to convince the disciples that he was alive. And when the lady, when the women folk, they came and they said to the disciples, he's alive. They thought, you're, you're foolish. Who are you kidding? And look at Thomas. He, he didn't believe it. That's a sad thing. They didn't believe that, that Jesus was going to arise again from the dead. And isn't that sad? Because over and over again in his ministry before Calvary, he was always emphasized, now listen, we're going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be scourged. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. Now they heard that. And on one occasion, they heard Jesus say to, to, the, to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They, they heard that. And yet, in spite of all the teaching, all the emphasis, they were not believing it. Now, do we really believe in the resurrection? I don't mean intellectually. Do we really believe that he's alive today? A living, glorified Savior. Oh, I trust we do. Because this is the message that the world needs. And your neighbors need. And your friends need. And your family needs. Not a dead Savior. A dead Savior is good for nobody. But someone who has conquered death. And I love what he said to John of the Isle of Patmos. Revelation chapter 1. Poor John. He'd been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And it's the Lord's Day. And he's probably thinking of the mainland of the different churches meeting together for fellowship. And there he is, exiled in the Isle of Patmos. Lonely, discouraged, dispirited, cast down. And then he had a visitor. Now isn't that just like the Lord? <laughs> Dear friends, do you ever feel discouraged at times? Do you ever feel uh, depressed? Come on, be honest tonight. Of course you do. Do you feel like thrown in the towel, giving things up, but what's the use of And sometimes it's in those moments that the Lord just comes near. And that's what happened. John had a visitor. And you can't get a better visitor than than the one he had. Because he had a vision of the exalted Christ. He says, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day. And he had this wonderful vision of the risen Christ. And then he felt his touch. He laid his right hand upon him. And he said to John, John, 
Theater. I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and have the keys of death and of Hades. They're dangling at this golden girdle this evening. I have the keys. What an encouragement that was to John. I'm alive, alive forevermore. Oh, I must give a good hallelujah. Praise the Lord, wonderful Jesus. My brother Tommy brought me the meeting tonight from Bell's Hill. And he said, I hope you've got a great sermon for us tonight. And I had to tell him, well, I said, I've got a great subject. And I've got a great person to preach about. But I can't guarantee you a great sermon. Forget about the great sermon, friends. If you've seen this wonderful Christ, that's it. We leave this meeting, glad we came. Not because you've seen this creature in front of you, but because you've had a vision of the risen Christ. Then I tell you the story, maybe I have. That's what the problem, Graham, you're getting old. You forget. You forget sometimes. I move around that many churches that I, I... But let me... It's worth repeating. And if, if you've heard it before, we can hear it again. Maybe you've forgotten about it. Victorian times, the great city of London. And at that particular time, if you lived in the Victorian time, the city of London, there were two great preachers. Yet Dr. Joseph Parker, a brilliant academic in the city temple. And then you had the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favourite authors, in the great tabernacle. Every Sunday, 5,000 people in the morning and 5,000 people in the evening. Packed. And there were visitors who came from America and they were exhorted, they were advised. Now, when, I, when you come, here's what you do. In the morning, you go along and you hear Dr. Joseph Parker. Now, he's in the city temple. Go along and hear him. And then in the evening, go along to the great tabernacle and hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. And one particular visitor did exactly that. Went to the city temple and heard the great Dr. Joseph Parker, a brilliant academic and a great preacher in the city temple. And as he was leaving the city temple, the visitor was heard to say, By what arbitrary, by what eloquence. He was captivated with the arbitrary and the eloquence of Dr. Joseph Parker. He went to hear the Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the tabernacle in the evening. And oh, what a preacher Spurgeon was. I just wish I could get them a time machine tonight. Again, I go back to Victorian time and dip into the tabernacle and hear Spurgeon preach. You see, when Spurgeon came, may I just say, when Spurgeon came to uh, London, the old modernists preaching to half empty churches, uh, they said, You see that fellow Spurgeon? Flash in the pan. He won't last very long. Flash in the pan. Look at him, just a young fellow. What does he do? 
But they were preaching to half empty churches and dead congregations. Spurgeon was preaching to 5,000 in the morning and 5,000 in the evening. Not just for a few months, but for over 30 years. And on times he would appeal to his members. He said, now members of the congregation, would you stay at home next Sunday? Don't come and let others come and take your seats. Oh, would to God we could have that today. Uh, the visitor went to hear the great Spurgeon preach. And here's what he was heard to say, leaving the tabernacle. What a wonderful saviour is Jesus Christ. You see, he heard Spurgeon preach. And Spurgeon, his obsession, if I could put it that way, was Jesus his last words when Spurgeon died that came from his lips was this Jesus died for me you see the visitor lost sight of Spurgeon and he saw the Christ that Spurgeon preached dear friends no use looking to me look to Jesus the Christ of God and I have been praying for this meeting that you won't leave this meeting and say well, I, that was a good sermon you see dear friends let me say this very graciously Christians can become sermon tasters they can become sermon tasters and there are many Christians and they are butterflies they flutter here and they flutter there in order to hear great preachers and all they say, oh, I, I, heard, I heard so and so, he's a great preacher. And they flutter here and they flutter there. Don't leave this meeting saying, my, what a great sermon. In fact, you might think it's a great sermon anyway. But to leave this meeting and pass through those doors and say, what a wonderful saviour is Jesus. He's alive and alive forevermore. Oh dear, is that the time, Graham? I, I get caught up, you know. I get caught up, you know. Have you got a packed lunch with you? Could I just conclude? You've been very patient, you see. But this is a great subject, isn't it? Great subject. But here's the sad thing. I must tell you this. Have you ever noticed the tendency in churches? Now, I'm not too sure if you do it here. I hope you don't. At Easter time, what happens? Out comes the great resurrection hymns. And we get all excited about the resurrection, and then after Easter's over, well, then we settle down again. Shame on us, shame on us, friends, which we live in every day in the excitement and the power of the resurrection. Here's what Paul said, and I, I wish I had time to preach it, that sermon of what Paul said. He says that I may know him, that is Jesus. And the power of his resurrection. Now when Paul wrote that. Do you know he's been a Christian for 30 years. And yet after 30 years. He says that I may know him. Now he didn't say that I know about him. Oh no. That I may know him. And there's a big difference between knowing about him. And knowing him. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering but that's another sermon and if you ask me back again I might preach that someday
Now the Lord willing, I'm not here next Sunday. You might have a decent preacher next Sunday. But on the 30th, we're going to continue our little studies on eschatology, the doctrine of last things. And I think I should deal with the great subject of the thousand year reign of our Lord Jesus on this earth. What a subject. I can hardly wait to know what I'm going to say. Well, the Lord bless you.